This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to Mark Faber, the editor and publisher of the famous Gloom, Boom and Doom report. Mark has made some bold calls in the past, very contrarian, like the one that he recommended people to buy stocks in the US in 2009, which was pretty much the bottom of the market. So Mark, welcome to this program. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, it's a pleasure for me to be on your program. Thank you very much. Great. Uh, Mark, I would really like your opinion about this. Uh, at the end of last year, most people were sure we were entering in a bear market. Everything was crashing down, stocks, bonds, commodities, pretty much everything. Then comes the very end of December and this January, and the market is acting as if it were another great buying opportunity. So in your opinion, what has changed from the end of December to the beginning of this year, apart from the Fed's capitulation? And, and more, <laughs> what do you expect for equity markets this year? Well, I mean, uh, the market became on a shorter term basis very oversold by December 26, which was the low and has since rebounded strongly, as you say, partly because of the change in the Fed's attitude towards the economy and towards further tightening. So I think that this is certainly a factor. Secondly, there has been a lot of talk recently about MMT, Modern uh, Monetary Theory, which is an extension, is a sibling, basically, of quantitative easing. It is... Uh, injected in the economy more directly than quantitative easing, but it's also a program, government program, I should point out, to stimulate the economy. Whether it will work or not is another question, but basically this is the idea of MMT. And under these conditions, investors believed that stocks would be, on a longer-term basis, a better buy or better investment uh, class than bonds. So money flowed into stocks. Another reason is that by the end of December, as always, uh, when markets go down, short selling had increased quite substantially. So as the market rallied, the shorts had to cover. And so we had this relatively strong rally. But it's interesting that if you look at, say, financial stocks, and I'm not talking here about European financial stocks that are a complete disaster. I mean, in fact, I'm always thinking about it because I'm a Swiss and then I look at the Swiss banks and I look at the performance of Swiss banks over the last 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. And it's been a disaster. And then I look at how many bonuses the senior managers took out. I mean, it's really a shame that with the performance being this poor, some people enriched themselves incredibly. And these banks were bailed out by the government on top of everything. So I don't know what the compensation committees in these companies is doing and the board of directors, but they certainly don't defend the rights of minority shareholders. But in the US, the banks have performed better, but they peaked out sometimes last year. 
then they sold off very badly into December 2018, and they rebounded, but they're far away from making new highs. And if you take a stock like, for instance, BlackRock, which is the world's largest fund manager or one of the largest fund managers in the world, as a proxy for the entire market, the stock hasn't recovered much at all. So I think that we have to be careful and saying, well, the market is close to a new high. A few stocks have made new highs, mostly actually the stocks that people didn't own, namely utilities, consumer staples, and real estate investment trusts. But the rest of the market hasn't done all that well. And in my opinion, uh, it's not very likely that we will make new highs because personally, I think the U.S. economy topped out in terms of economic activity in September, October, and that measured to compare to September, October 2018, we are already in a recession. So I, I believe that the earnings will gradually disappoint, and we've seen some disappointments in earnings. Uh, as an example, a proxy for global economic activity would be FedEx, and the earnings have been disappointing. So I'm far from sure that this market will continue to go up. It may, but it may not. And I have argued that government bonds, which people didn't like at the end of last year, when they were yielding over 3% on the 10 years U.S. Treasury, I think the Treasury market uh, has a performed very well and it may continue to perform reasonably well. Okay, interesting. And do you see a crash in the stock market? Well, uh, for sure there will be again crashes, but I don't think there will be a crash right away. Uh, and it also depends how do you define a crash. We had crashes in individual shares. That's we had. But in the entire market, I don't see a crash, partly because the market seems to be, I'm just saying seems to be, and I can't prove it, but I think there is some manipulation that when the market goes down strongly on a day, uh, someone comes in, it could be the plunge protection team, as they call it, or uh, the New York Fed or whoever it is, but someone comes in and supports stocks. So if we define a crash as a decline of, say, 10% in one day, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But who knows? I mean, it might. Okay. So uh, in your opinion, what's the Fed going to do in 2019? And uh, what impact will it have in the developed and, uh, and the emerging markets? Do, do you think the Fed's going to raise rates as they promised last year? They're going to stay like they are, which they, they, they just said? Uh, or, or they may cut rates and start QE4. Yes, I mean, when they started with QE1 in December 2008 under Mr. Bernanke, I said, this is the beginning of QE infinity. In other words, unlimited QEs, because government programs, once they're installed, it's very difficult to go back on them. And my sense is that the increase in interest rates uh, from essentially zero to close to 2.5% on the Fed fund rate, that this is actually a significant tightening and that this has uh, had an impact on economic activity. 
Now, someone may say, well, it's nothing to go from zero to two and a half percent. That's correct. We're still at very low rates, two and a half percent. But percentage wise, we've gone up very substantially. And I think that this is slowing down the economy much more than before, because we have this huge financial bubble that we built up in the world and the asset bubble. So I, I think the Fed realizes that uh, they may have gone a little bit too far in tightening, and therefore they are now waiting. And what they always say is data dependent. Basically, they're dependent on the stock market. The stock market goes down, <laughs> they'll print money. As the stock market goes up very substantially, they'll probably maybe increase rates once again a little bit, but not much. But I agree with you. The way I look at the economy and the way I look at the global economy, I think this year we are going to get, by the summer, interest rate cuts in the U.S. And I think we are also going to get probably the introduction of QE4. But, uh, you know, to be fair to the Fed and also to Trump, one of the problems is that the Fed increased rates and the others, the Bank of Japan, and the ECB didn't. In fact, they continue with their programs of asset purchase. That led to a strong dollar, which uh, is, I don't think is in the long run negative for the US, but in the short run, it's probably not favorable for the economy. And uh, it creates a different set of problems. So to be fair to the Fed, I think that if other central banks had also lifted rates, the Fed would have actually more leeway, but the others didn't follow. They are still in the age of Yellen and Bernanke of printing money unlimited. So, you know, Powell is probably okay as a Fed chairman, but his actions are limited by also international events. And as you know, the global economy has been slowing down. In Europe, I can say that we are in recession. In Japan, we're probably also, if not in a recession, then in uh, complete stagnation. And then uh, we have in China, who knows for sure, because they also cheat on their economic statistics. They learn that the U.S. always accuses China of stealing everything. Yeah, they stole doctoring and massaging of economic statistics and the faking of economic statistics. That. They copied from the U.S. and they didn't pay any patent fees. <laughs> anyway, but the Chinese economy, there's clear evidence that it has slowed down very considerably. Okay, okay, interesting. It's uh, uh, just, just a touch on on the subject you mentioned, the Fed, and they say that the, the Fed has a dual mandate, right? Which is the Dow Jones and the S&P. That's <laughs> what yes. they look at. <laughs> they should also look at the transportation index because the transportation index is the most economic sensitive index, probably with the semiconductor index. <laughs> transportation index, in my view, has no chance to make a new high. Mm, interesting. And uh, you touched the, the subject of bonds, uh, Mark, and uh, the yield curve is flattening. And in some parts of the curve, there's already an inversion. Last Friday, the three months uh, actually versus the 10-year treasury spread inverted for the first time since 2007. And I would just like to point out that in, on six occasions over the past 50 years, when the three-month yield exceeded that of the 10-year, 
we've got an economic recession. Now, do you expect a recession in the U.S. soon? And uh, you, you mentioned that uh, the U.S. economy topped out in September, October of last year. Many sectors are already in recession, uh, in my view. Uh, some sectors not yet. It's like in China. I had a meeting with some experts on China that uh, invest most of their money in China. And I asked them, when you go around China, do you think there is a recession or and they say, well, the economy has slowed down and some sectors may be in recession, but others may not be in recession. And I think the same in the U.S. A lot of sectors are already in recession. But you understand, we have in the U.S. for 2019, the budget is projected at $4.7 trillion. That's the government expenditures, okay? And the deficit is projected at $1.1 trillion. That money that is being spent has, to some extent, an impact on the economy. You know, it, it flows somewhere into wages and into transfer payments and into the defense industry and so forth, and in subsidies, and then, then. And so some sectors <laughs> may still expand. But I just looked at the financial sector. The financial sector in the U.S. is 24% of the economy. It's a huge sector, much larger than manufacturing, okay? And it's 7% the service in the finance. Now, if I look at the performance of brokerage stocks, bank, fund managers, I think the sector is going to contract a lot. Because why would you hire a fund manager that doesn't perform as well as the index. Why would you pay him a high fee for underperforming the index and so forth? And I believe this artificial intelligence and new technologies will uh, essentially bring about a huge contraction in the financial service industry. Oh, quite interesting. And uh, yeah, and you mentioned a deficit of uh, more than $1 trillion um, on the time that there is no war and no recession. It's, it's, this it's is MMT. Be... They don't care about spending. They don't care about deficits. And, you know, in Japan, they have a large deficit. The government has been buying bonds and stocks. And so far, it's functioned halfway. But there is no economic growth. So we have to be very clear. Theoretically, according to Keynes, monetary stimulus plus fiscal stimulus leads to an expansion and has an inflationary impact. That is the theory. But the reality may be different. Maybe because of high government spending and because of money printing, maybe the economy doesn't uh, actually expand. That is a possibility. That is not what the Keynesians want to hear. But I can make the case. Money printing lifts asset prices like property prices, and so forth. Then they become less affordable, so young people can't buy them, okay? That is negative for the economy. Number two, government spending expands the government as a percent of the economy, and in the ultimate case, the government is like in socialist countries, 100% of the economy, which stifles economic growth. So we have to be very careful what the theorists the academics who never worked a day in their lives except at universities and in the towers of the Federal Reserve in Washington or where else, and what the reality 
of the man on the street is. Sure. sure. Well, Japan might just get there sooner, right? I mean, it's so socialism through yes. the back door. <laughs> But in Europe, we also have to a large extent already in some countries socialism. We have that. They will not call it that way to give people the illusion that they are free and that they can choose. But in reality, they're not free sure. and they can't sure. choose. I agree. I agree. Just going back to the uh, subject of rates, Mark, uh, do you believe interest rates globally will go down from here? I mean, in certain parts of the world, they are already zero and, and uh, <laughs> Germany, Switzerland, which is your country, Japan, yes. they are already negative. Yes. This is a wonderful question. You know, some people ask me, because I started to work in 1970, and then they say, Mark, in your life in the investment business, which is now close to 50 years, what has been the most surprising thing? Now, I tell them, for me, without thinking much, obviously the crash in 87. When I went home in Hong Kong, it was like two o'clock in the morning in Hong Kong, because we have the time difference. Uh, the market was down 200 points. But when I came in the morning, <laughs> the market was down over 500 points, 21% in one day. That was a big surprise. But equally, when I look at the time 1978 to 1982-83, when Treasury bond yields in the U.S., went to over 14%, uh, then I have to say, for me, the biggest long-term surprise <laughs> is that $9 trillion worth of bonds globally could have a negative interest rate. That I never dreamt in my life, never. Mark, listen, I, I, I am Brazilian, you know that. If I tell you the things I've went through uh, in my life, you wouldn't believe. I mean, uh, I've seen confiscation of savings, hyperinflation, deflation. Yeah, yeah, sure, I've seen it also because I visited Brazil often. Yeah, many crashes, devaluation, appreciation of the currency, everything. But negative interest rates <laughs> is something very new to yeah. me. It's like... <laughs> This I never dreamt in my life. And if someone had told me about negative interest rates, you know, five or ten years ago, and I said, who on earth is dumb enough to buy a bond with <laughs> negative interest rates? A, a bond from a country that's already uh, heavily indebted and has no chances of paying you back and paying you negative interest rates. It's, <laughs> it's a shock. But I, I want to tell you an argument, because you asked me whether rates can mm -hmm. go lower. You know... I'm an investor. I have, say, 100 million or 50 million or whatever it is. And I look at the asset market. The assets that I can invest in, basically, are real estate stocks, bonds, precious metal, and maybe some art and God's what. Then I look at the prices of these assets. They are all very high that we can agree with. Now, can I find some assets that are relatively low compared to others? Yes, but we had an asset price inflation over the last 30 years. There's no question about this. There hasn't been a lot of wage inflation, but asset inflation we had. That's why wealth inequality has increased. But anyway, now I go about investing my money and I say, okay, in the long run, stocks perform well, but they also went down the index by roughly 50% in 2001, 2002. And again, by approximately 50% in 2007-2008 and uh, I'm also an investor in various funds some of these funds they were down 48% in one year so then I say to myself okay 
I put 25% of my money in stocks, or maybe 40% or whatnot, but I also do have some money where I'm guaranteed to get it back. And I may consider it's better to get back uh, my money in 10 years with a small loss <laughs> than to get it back <laughs> with a big loss because I gave it to a fund manager. I understand <laughs> your point. So you understand? Then I said to myself, then I buy German government bonds, US government bonds and so forth. And uh, I'm not going to make any money, but on 20% of my money, I'm sure not to lose a lot. So the person who believes in a deflationary shock, in other words, that all asset prices, including art, stocks, corporate bonds, uh, commodities that they all decline, <laughs> he is going to consider buying bonds, even if they have negative interest rates, because he thinks maybe these negative interest rates will become even larger negative interest rates. I'm not saying that I'm a great believer in this, but it's a way uh, one can explain negative interest rates. Say, if you come to me and say, Mark, here is $100 million. You have to invest everything in stocks or everything in zero coupon, in zero yielding bonds uh, for 10 years. You know, it's something to think about. <laughs> okay. Mark, another thing, you, you travel a lot and you talk to many people. You, you actually talk to everyone. So uh, tell me, where can we find you at the moment? Because negative interest rates, we, can, we know where to find. No, I basically have an office in Hong Kong. But when I'm not traveling, I'm mostly in uh, the north of Thailand, in Chiang Mai. And uh, I also spend some time in Vietnam. Oh, and, and, and they are doing fine, I assume. Well, you know, it's the same story uh, like elsewhere. The rich are becoming very rich and the poor are not progressing much. There is some progress, but not much. Okay, okay. So uh, you, at the moment, it's difficult. Yes, and the Vietnamese economy is a boom economy, but the valuation of stocks is not that low. And although it's a boom economy, we have to realize that it's still a government that is quite heavy-handed. You know, it's not a very liberal <laughs> society. But the people work hard and uh, they are compared to other Indo-Chinese like Cambodians or Laotians, Thais, uh, Indonesians and so forth. They are relatively reliable and uh, they have initiative. They want to learn. They are essentially li like the Chinese and the Koreans. That's why a lot of money has been invested in Vietnam from Taiwan, South Korea, Japan and China. Sure. And, and do you have a view on emerging market currencies, uh, Asian currencies, Latin American <laughs> currencies? Yes. Just in the last few days, the emerging market currencies have begun to weaken against the US dollar again. Mm -hmm. uh, it started uh, principally with the Turkish lira, but also the Brazilian real looks like weakening, as does the Argentine peso and the Mexican peso. So I think for the you know, foreseeable future, the dollar should be going up against these currencies. But in the long run, I'm obviously not very optimistic about the US dollar. Sure. And, and, and in regards to emerging market stocks, they, they have underperformed the US in the last uh, few years. Are they relatively attractive in uh, relation to the US? I think so, yes. I mean, again, if you put the gun on my head and say you have to invest this money, and you can only choose either the US or emerging markets, 
I would buy emerging markets, but I need to point out here something. The last few years have been favorable for index funds. In other words, funds that mirror the index. I think the next few years could be like 1965 to 1982 in the U.S. We move on the indices essentially sideways. We trade up and down, but not much movement up or down. But the stock pickers can do well if they are in the right sector. So I think that, uh, you know, your question about should I invest in emerging markets or the U.S. and so is uh, an academic question. In practice, I think we need to now dig more and harder to find companies that will do relatively well, that have a relatively low valuation at the present time, and uh, that uh, these companies will perform well, whereas other companies will not perform well. After 2000, you know, technology didn't perform well, but resource stocks performed well and housing stocks performed well. So we need to, I think, be very selective what we're going to invest in. Sure, sure. And now in regards to commodities, um, you, you mentioned the US dollar uh, is strong now, but it shouldn't be the, the place to be over the long term. So if that's the case, commodities might outperform, right? And which ones do you like the most, if, uh, if you like them at all? Well, I, I think that commodities, we can't talk about commodities in general because the price of wheat has very little to do with the price of uh, coffee and has very little to do with the price of copper, aluminum, zinc, uh, nickel. So I think in the environment I'm looking for that we already are in recession in the US, that we are in a recession in Europe and a meaningful slowdown in, uh, in China, I don't think that industrial commodities will do well for now until the next recovery transpires. Agricultural commodities, including rice and sugar and coffee, are very low, very cheap. But, you know, whether the, the individual investor is not easy to invest in these commodities because of the rollover cost. Now, if you are a coffee grower, plant your coffee and you harvest your coffee, then uh, you can make money if the price goes up, obviously. But as you know, agriculture is a very tough business and uh, not everybody wants to uh, endure the headache associated with uh, government regulation and with uh, failed harvests and so forth. So it's a, it's a very tough business. But uh, as an asset class, I agree with you. Commodities are low relative to financial assets. And I think that some uh, food companies are probably relatively attractive. Number two, in the basket of assets I suggest people to own, I would own some precious metals. Now, how much is everybody has to decide for himself? I own approximately 20% of my money in uh, precious metals. And uh, talking about precious metals, uh, what are your views on gold and gold stocks? Because um, lots of things have happened in the last few years, from trade wars to a skyrocketing debt. And, and gold has not gone up by as much as uh, some would expect. Yes, I agree. I, I agree. Basically, and I just wrote about this, I own gold, okay? And I'm still buying gold and I believe in gold. But I have to say, considering all the mess that we are seeing and all the debt levels and the money printing, the performance of precious metals has been miserable. You know, 
I would have thought they would go up more. I'm happy they didn't go up a lot because now I can still buy at reasonable prices. But basically, if you had told me 10 years ago, they have QE, QE1, QE2, then Operation Twist, QE3, and now they're talking about QE4, having Japan money printing, the ECB is printing money, then I would have said, yeah, the growth price will go up a lot. But instead, since 2011, it's kind of gone down. Since December 2015, it's up, but it's not up that much. The slowdown in China has been in the news for a while, and, and you actually mentioned it a couple of times during this interview. Which peripheral countries are feeling the most pain from the Chinese slowdown at the moment? Well, the countries that actually are like a warrant on China are Taiwan, South Korea and Japan. They feel uh, it a lot, but even Thailand feels a certain slowdown. All Asian countries now, all of them, they export more to China than to the US. All of them. Even Brazil and probably Australia too. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, yeah, sure. But I was just talking about the Asian countries. So the impact of a slowdown in the Chinese economy is much more important than a slowdown in the U.S. economy. The U.S. is mostly a service economy. China is a manufacturing economy still. Sure, very good point. Mark, in your opinion, what are the risks in the market right now that people are not paying attention to? I mean, I think there is a political risk. I think the mood has deteriorated. The parties are very polarized, you know, and people have become very intolerant. And this asset inflation has created an atmosphere where you have people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who can create a movement that essentially says the reason you people are not well paid, that you are not making a lot of money and so forth, is because of these pigs, the rich people. And, you know, the rich people, they acted rationally. They held assets. And some were inherited assets, some were acquired assets and so forth. But the people that made them rich, actually, is the Federal Reserve and the ECB and the Bank of Japan through money printing. So you can't condemn the rich people just like this. I agree there has been some abuse and so forth. But the cause of this wealth inequality is really money printing. And that they don't address. And so the political climate is now split. You have people that essentially are behind Trump and behind a more right-wing faction of the political scene. And then you have more and more ultra-socialists coming in, in every country. Also in Europe, we have right-wing people and we have the socialists also in Brazil. And this polarization, in my opinion, is not uh, very good, not very conducive, and may have an impact on asset prices. Number two, Trump may get re-elected in 2020, but in 20, 2024, I think there could be a big move towards the left with taxation going up and so forth and so on. I'm not so optimistic about asset prices, whether it's re also real estate, you know, they, they can come and tax it. You've seen it in Brazil, expropriation. <laughs> That's the first. It's all happened before. Listen, Mark, uh, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. You too, Mark. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.
If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast.